Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. In this week's edition of Insight, it's full disclosure from us this week. We've never seen the Demi Moore and Michael Douglas classic movie. If you're confused about the duty of disclosure debate, you're not the only ones. Today, we disclose every matter while at the same time taking reasonable care not to make a misrepresentation. While our overworked legal team spends several minutes trying to work out whether I can say the previous sentence, we turn our attention to the news that Richard Enthoven is taking a step back at Hollard. And finally, while we should have led with this story, we're trying to appear modest about our Northern Australia reinsurance pool prediction. Hello, everyone. On the panel today, we have Managing Editor John Deeks and Insurance News Chairman Terry McMullen. Morning, John. Do you have anything to disclose to us? Um, well, as you know, Andrew, a journalist must never disclose their sources, so I better keep quiet on that one. Very good. Hello, Terry. Hopefully you're going to bring your A-game this week after being benched last week. <laughs> well, when it comes to the, the duty of disclosure, I'm taking the Fifth Amendment. Okay. Um, so on to this week's industry analysis. It's finally happened. As we predicted, the government has announced a cyclone reinsurance pool for Northern Australia. John, what do we know at this stage? Yes. Okay. Well, as I'm speaking to you right now, details are still a little bit sketchy because Prime Minister Scott Morrison hasn't actually made the announcement yet. But thanks to information being leaked to the ABC in advance, which ties in with what our contacts are telling us, we do know some of the key planks of the scheme. It will be a reinsurance pool for cyclone and associated flood damage for approximately half a million properties north of the Tropic of Capricorn. It'll be backed by a $10 billion government guarantee and should be operational by July next year. Treasury will now work closely with the insurance industry to deliver the final design of the pool. Terry, I appreciate that um, you know the news is yet to be released and uh, yet we're talking about it. Um, but how is the industry going to play this? Most of insurers have argued against it um, and have, have done so for several years, haven't they? It'll be interesting to see the the, um, the reaction of the individual insurers, particularly companies like Suncorp, who are heavily invested in northern Aus- or northern Queensland, where most of this is a problem. Um, really, what, what we're seeing is... Um, is, is coming true from, from the reports that go back all the way to the Abbott government. Uh, and Allianz, it should be remembered, did support the concept of a reinsurance pool at that time. But insurers have always focused more on mitigation projects and government by through government um, investment uh, and strengthening infrastructure. So... Um, Look, the thing that makes me smile a little is is that the ACCC uh, took three years to um, study and report on this issue and specifically resisted the idea of a reinsurance pool. And uh, you, you have to wonder really why we bothered when uh, that report has obviously been shelved. The terrorism reinsurance pool uh, concept, which was set up after 9-11, has been very successful. And and I'm sure the government won't have failed to notice that it 
the uh, pool has provided the government with tens of millions of dollars in so-called rent for covering the ultimate guarantee of, a ter- uh, of coverage for a terror attack. So um, let's wait and see what the details are. But I think once the government realises the exposure they may be getting involved in, we might get some interest rising in the benefits of mitigation. You probably couldn't tell from our introduction, but the duty of disclosure will be consigned to history, at least as far as consumer insurance is concerned, from October 5. What's the background to this reform, John? Well, you have to go all the way back to the Royal Commission hearings in 2018, um, when Kenneth Hayne heard a case study, which he was less than impressed with. It featured a life insurance claimant whose claim was denied because she failed to disclose an unrelated medical condition. Commissioner Hayne promptly recommended ditching the duty of disclosure altogether for consumer contracts in life and general insurance and replacing it with a duty to take reasonable care not to make a misrepresentation. This change comes into force on October the 5th. So we've put together a detailed analysis article explaining what the impact could be and how the industry should be preparing. Ultimately, it's the reasonable care element that's new. Even if a consumer answers the insurer's questions incorrectly, to deny the claim on this basis, the insurer would have to prove that they failed to take reasonable care. How AFCA interprets this will be crucial. Insurance Ombudsman John Price told me that giving an honest answer that later turns out to be wrong isn't careless. But there will be an element of considering what a reasonable person is expected to know. For example, he said, if you you were asked how many claims you've made in the last five years and you said, I think it's three and it later turned out to be four, that's not necessarily careless. But if you were asked, have you ever been banned from driving? And you say no, but the truth is yes, that probably is careless because you'd be expected to know that. Only time will tell exactly how this plays out, but insurers, brokers and consumers need to be aware of this change. Importantly, the duty of disclosure continues for contracts that are not defined as consumer insurance contracts. There have also been some calls from consumer representatives to carry out more checks at the point of sale, haven't there? What are they getting at? Yes, that's right. Consumer groups point out that when you make a claim, insurers are very capable of looking back and checking all the answers you gave when you bought the policy. And they sometimes deny the claim as a result. So consumer groups say, why can't they, using modern technology and big data, carry out those checks at the point of purchase in relation to things like claims history or criminal history? This would save people driving around with what they call fake insurance and putting themselves and others at greater risk. AFCA's Mr. Price agrees that it's a good idea, and his only concern is around potential privacy issues. Insurers may feel it would be too time-consuming and not practical to check every answer as it's given. Also, the databases might not even be accurate, and surely the consumer is the most likely person to hold the information required. But we don't really know how insurers feel about it because they wouldn't engage on this issue. Terry, what do you think about this? Well, if insurance is is based on uh, the concept of utmost good faith, I don't see that it's going to be a a major thing for insurers to adjust to. It refers only to personal lines, after all. Um, And I guess some of this will be tested as John has said, by AFCA and also possibly uh, in court. Um, I I really don't see that it's going to be too hard to adjust to this, but uh, I 
guests ask me that in 12 months and we, we might have a more definitive answer. Not willing to make a prediction on this one. Well, we've reported on a major change at Hollard this week with CEO Richard Enthoven stepping back to focus on a broader role. Tell us about this one, John. Yes, that's right. So Richard Enthoven will no longer be CEO of Hollard in Australia, ending a journey that started way back in 1999. Mr. Enthoven will instead focus on his role as MD of Hollard Holdings Australia, the group's holding company. And the CEO role will be taken up by current Personal Lines CEO, Paul Fahey. Mr. Endhoven tells us that the company, which now delivers annual gross written premium of $1.6 billion, needs to adapt as it continues to grow. As a result, he feels he needs to step back from the day-to-day running of the company to focus more on purpose and strategy. Terry, Richard um, and Hollard started in 19, uh, 1999, according to, uh, to John. You'd already been in the industry 30 years by that stage. Um, you've obviously witnessed the growth of Hollard in this country. <laughs> Does this feel like the start of a new chapter? And what do you think the future holds? Um, yes, I have known Richard Enthoven a long time, and I had the pleasure also of meeting his father. And uh, it should be realised that the the Hollard organisation is is a very large one, and Richard Enthoven has built this insurance company up from nothing. Uh, if Richard is stepping back, I can only say that people should keep an eye on, on where um, Hollard is going. Uh, Richard has built an extraordinary team around him uh, and, a, and an ex- a really, really impressive operation. Um, so I, I think that we certainly haven't heard the the end of uh, the Endhoven name being mentioned in our bulletins because uh, he's always, has always been and always will be, I believe, well worth watching. We know that New South Wales continues to controversially charge an emergency services levy on insurance. We had higher hopes for reform in New Zealand, but John, it appears to have gone the same way, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. You can sense the real disappointment on this from ICNZ and the wider insurance industry in New Zealand. Um, There was a reform process underway, which was set to consider the possibility of ditching the insurance-based levy for fire services and replacing it with a property-based charge. But now the government says, basically, it's all too hard to get done within the necessary timeframes. So instead, they're going to just try to improve the current insurance-based model. ICNZ strongly disagrees and says New Zealand could end up being the last country standing on this and punishing people who choose to insure and at the same time helping to make insurance more unaffordable. Terry, for even an insurance novice like me, this seems... um crazy. Um, Why is the insurance industry so adamant that these kind of taxes on insurance needs to go? Oh, the the New Zealand argument is exactly the same as the New South Wales argument. Um, There is absolutely no reason why the insurance industry should be expected to provide massive amounts of money to uh, support fire and, and, and other emergency services. This is, this is crazy. It, it is inequitable because unless you want to make insurance compulsory for everybody, which you don't, of course. Um, the New Zealand system is every bit as damaging to 
people's ability to afford insurance as, as it is in New South Wales. Um, it, it's a crazy situation. But I don't think anybody in New Zealand, in the industry in New Zealand anyway, would have been surprised by the government finally backing away because the, the transition costs are pretty impressive. And I just think that they've, they've finally thrown their hands in the air uh, after so many years of examining this issue and just said, oh, well, well, we'll keep the status quo, which means that people will continue to underinsure and governments will continue to pretend that it's all an insurance problem. It is not. And finally, our insurtech section continues to prove popular. This week, John, we've seen a vision for the future, courtesy of Brisbane-based Flood Map. That's map with two Ps. What are they suggesting? Well, apparently, if there's a hailstorm, some insurers will already text customers to tell them to get their car under cover. What Flood Map is saying is the same could happen in a flood. Flood Map provides real-time modelling before, during and after floods and hopes to work with insurers to provide these kinds of alerts as a flood event develops. This would allow people to move their cars to higher ground or move their belongings to the top of their building. And they could also do things like turn off the power to reduce the amount of damage. Um, so Floodmap hopes that by using its technology to work with insurers in this way, they could cut the losses during a flood event. And of course, in turn, if it works, cut the cost of premiums. Terry, could this help insurers reduce the cost of claims? Yeah, it well could. Um, it's a really good example of how technology in a wider sense can actually help people to minimise claims um, and therefore help the insurance industry. It does nothing at all, of course, to um, remove the risk uh, which is, is still massive. And as long as governments keep letting uh, property developers build on, on flood-prone areas, then we're going to have this problem. And northeastern Sydney is a case in point. But certainly this is, is a really, it's a good step forward. And I think you'll probably see more and more of these kind of things happening in the, in the years ahead as technology starts to find little ways of, of improving the lot. Certainly, I think that, that insurers would embrace the, the concept. Fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry McMullen and John Deeks. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.